0: You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. We are in a series. We're actually working through the entire Bible. Um, 30,000 foot level, not every book, not every verse, not every um, story. Um, But we're trying to um, explore the scriptures from beginning to end uh, for the next well, eight, nine months or so. Uh, We'll have a few breaks here and there. Uh, But one of the things that we've come to to believe, and I think the church has come to believe, that, that regardless of what book you're in, regardless what verses you're reading, regardless of what promises are being made or commands are being made, is that on every page of scripture, there's hints and there's echoes of Jesus, the the Messiah who came to redeem and restore all things, and we think that's the best way to read uh, the scriptures. That there's there's great wisdom there. there there's great inspiration there. There's great uh, maybe people to emulate there, or maybe not. Um, but the reality is, the whole book from beginning to end is a God who has stamped on human history to say, I love you this much that I've come to redeem and restore all things, to take people that are broken and sinful and bring them into relationship with Me, to to make things that are that are dark and bring light into dark spaces, and it's all through the work of Jesus. And so um, so with that, we're going to look at another story in Genesis. We're almost out of Genesis. Uh, we'll, we'll be there, I think, one more week, and then we'll, we'll move out of Genesis. But it, this is the story of um, Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban. And so we're going to drop right into the middle of the story in Genesis 29, starting in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, Genesis 29, verse 15. It'll be on the screen as well. If you need a Bible, there should be one around you as well. So Genesis 29, verse verse 15. Here's what it says. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him, but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave the female servant Zilpha to the daughter Leah to her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years." Jacob did so and completed her work. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of God for us this morning. So what do most people think of when they think of the Bible? It's, it's a book of moral fables. It's inspirational. It's wisdom. Um, it's faith heroes that we are to emulate, to be like. But what, there's also other ways that we look at the scripture. We see God, it seems like he's destroying everything. He's angry, right? We have all kinds of um, perceptions of what the scriptures are. People have uh, hangups over the faith because of the Bible um, itself. But one thing I know about when you really get into the scriptures is that the Bible is honest. It's raw. It's bloody. It doesn't sharpen off. It doesn't sand off the rough edges, It deals with evil, it deals with sin, it deals with broken relationships, but it also deals with the God who meets us in those places, a God who redeems, a God who blesses, a God who saves. It doesn't hold back the realities of life under the sun. And it's honest about the ways you and I and the world make a mess of things. And that's what I I, I love about the scriptures. And I've always been drawn to the scriptures because it's not what I thought it was. It's not the stories of Sunday school classes where everybody's happy and everybody wins, right? And yet we sand off all the, the, the hard parts, right? It's like we love the story of Noah, but we don't talk about when he's drunk in the tent, right? It's not as good a Sunday school story. But Right, And so I I love that about the scriptures. It tells us like it is how it really is and how we really are. I love what G.K. Chesterton once said. He says, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people, (laughs) right? And so it reveals the, the complexity. The scriptures reveal the complexity of life, of relationships, of how hard they are. And Genesis 29 is one of those stories that reveals that I think so well and so perfectly of the difficulties of relationships and the difficulties of our of our hearts wanting things more than we should, right? Do, going to great lengths to 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 ha- to like you know you see that example of Jacob wanting Rachel so bad that he'll do anything to have her. And the story and the scriptures aren't going to rough off and sand down the hard edges. It's gonna present it as it really is and say we have to deal with the complexity of, of sin and relationships and a God who redeems in the midst of that. And so this morning, just for a few moments together, I want to look at the story of Rachel and Leah and Jacob and Laban. And I want to first, just to give us a little context, I want to look at the backdrop of the story so that we can understand, I think, better what's going on in this particular story. I'm going to look at a few key, I think, details or features of this story, and then I want to look at what do we learn from this particular story this morning. So a little bit of backdrop. Now, if you haven't been with us, I think these are some important details to kind of give us a a feel for what's going on as we arrive here with Jacob and Leah and Rachel, is that you remember a few chapters back in in chapter 12 and 15 and 17, God comes to this man, Abraham, and makes a promise with him, makes a covenant with him. He he comes to this this family and says, I'm going to make this promise with you, and it's going to be a promise of grace. And it's a promise of grace because the world is a mess. The world has has walked away from God. The world is living east of Eden. And I'm going to come and bless you, Abraham, and your family. And, and I'm making a promise that through your family, I'm going to redeem all things. I'm going to renew all things. That the, the whole world has gone nuts. We've walked away from God. We're doing our own things. Yet I'm going to make a promise to you and your family that if you trust me, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I'm going to bring hope and blessing and salvation. And, and actually, Abraham, through your family, there's going to be a seed, a, a child, a promised messianic seed that will come, that one day he'll come to rule and reign and make all things right. And this whole movement is based on the promises of God and his grace and his mercy. But simultaneously, as we read these stories in Genesis, is that we realize another detail of this this story that's unfolding, is that these families are a mess. These families are riddled with suffering. You remember Isaac, he he was the only son after the death of Ishmael, and he was going to be the one to carry the promise. And then we see Rebecca. she gets pregnant, she has twins, she has Esau, right? You remember Esau and Jacob, and the younger Esau was going to be the seed bearer. He was going to carry the promise to the next generation to ensure that redemption and blessing would come through this family, but also come to the whole world. But as we know, Esau grows up. He becomes proud. He becomes angry. He's also a hairy man. Jacob becomes a manipulator, right? He will do anything to take the birthright from Esau. So we already see that even though these promises are being made, even though this promise of blessing and redemption, these are flawed, deeply flawed humans that God is working with, deeply selfish manipulators that God is dealing with, to the point where Jacob in Genesis 27, he, he fools Isaac he, he, and fools his father, and he comes in and steals the birthright from him. And you already begin to see, even before we get to chapter 29, the heart of Jacob. He's a mess. (laughs) He's not thinking about these promises. He's not thinking about the God of mercy and the God of grace who's who's promised to bless him and his, his family. He's lost sight of all of that. I'm going to do what I want to do and do things in my own way. And when we pick up Genesis 29, you get a little picture of And you've you've mentioned, I've mentioned this a few times, is this idea of east of Eden, living east of Eden. Notice it says in in 29 verse one, I didn't read it earlier. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Isn't that a great picture? It's it's the writer of scripture giving us a little wink and a little nod to say, hey, remember, everybody's living east of Eden. Everyone's doing their own thing. They don't want to live in my presence. They don't want to listen to my, my promises and my commands. Things have gone off the rails. And here's Jacob now wandering and going about his own way, doing his own thing. He goes, I'm going to go live with the people that are living east of Eden. Now, When we understand the story of the scriptures, we understand the story of humanity. All of us live east of Eden, right? All of us live out of this perfection that God gave us in the Garden of Eden, this this place where we could flourish with God and flourish with each other, but now we've all decided to move further and further east, away from God's best, away from God's promises, away from God's presence. Now, this is where we pick up the story, some key features with the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban is that when we pick it up at the first few verses of chapter 29, which I didn't read, it's a very common ancient world thing where you'd, you'd be traveling through and then there's these shepherds and there's some contracts being made of who's going to work and how are you going to live. And, and so they're, they're kind of wheeling and dealing with Jacob and his family and they have these introductions. And so here we see Jacob, he encounters Laban, who we know now is his uncle. And so they're wheeling and dealing, talking about the sheep and the livestock and and how he's going to work the land and all these things. But notice what Laban's plan is here, is that he's the the uncle of Jacob and he has these two girls, Rachel and Leah. And so we see this in verse 13. He says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, he's all excited, right? His sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to this house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, "Surely you are my bone and my flesh?" And he stayed with him a month." Then Laban said to Jacob, "Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be." So Laban sees this opportunity with Jacob. Here's this guy who's part of my family. I'm his, his uncle. He comes into our midst. I have these two daughters, Leah and Rachel. But when you really look at the story, Laban is not pure here. He is not an innocent party here. He's not saying, hey, I got these two daughters. What a coincidence. Maybe you should take one off my hands and be married and go and, right? Keep the promises going, right? These promises that God made, like, that's, that's the thing here. He's like, no, 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 no. How do I make money in this situation? I only have one daughter. I have two daughters. And, and what we learn about um, Jacob if you keep reading, verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. We'll come back to that. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you, that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed for him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I love that detail. Right? He's just, Jacob's out in the field just thinking about Rachel for seven years. Shepherding the, the sheep, he's working in the fields in this day and night. I just can't wait to marry Rachel. She is so beautiful. She is so beautiful. The scriptures say that she's beautiful in form. It says that Leah was not, she had weak eyes. Now that's an interesting little detail. Like, okay, what? Like, did she didn't have good eyesight? Like, she didn't have 20/20. Like, what, what's going on here? But I think this is a an ancient way of saying that there's something perhaps wrong with Leah. Perhaps her eyes were actually cross-eyed. So you have Rachel, who's this beautiful in appearance and form, and Jacob is smitten with her. And then you have Leah, who's who's actually the oldest daughter who's not as good looking, perhaps has cross eyes, perhaps something's wrong with her. There's, there's nothing that, that Jacob is drawn to. She's the ugly duckling of the family. Now, what's rumbling under the surface of this is, this is a strange story because there's two daughters in, in ancient cultures, and actually it says, that the text will tell us a little bit later, is that the oldest daughter was always the first one to, be, to go in marriage, not the youngest Laban's a con con artist. He's only thinking about money. He's only thinking about how do I leverage? I got this ugly daughter. How do I get her off my hands? Right? And here's, man, I've hit the jackpot. Here's Jacob. He's just smitten with Rachel. I mean, he's he's laboring for seven years. And all he can think about is Rachel. Man, there's going to be a day when I'm going to finally marry this girl for seven years. That's some serious love. That's some serious affection that it doesn't even feel like seven years because you love someone so much. So Jacob's going to work for seven years to have Rachel. He's infatuated with her. We noticed that that detail. It didn't even feel that long because he loved her so much. He would do anything to have with her. But there's no sense that Jacob is remembering the promises of, of Abraham and all the families and all the blessing and all the salvation. All he's thinking about is this one woman that he could have in seven years if he does if he plays his hand right. If I could just get this girl. Now we get down to twenty-one and notice what happens in the narrative. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So he pays his debts, right? He's worked off, and now he can have Rachel finally. That's what this means, for my, to, to go into her, to, to be married, to consummate our marriage. And so Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is it that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? You see Laban, he's a con artist, right? He's got this daughter who's not good looking. It's his oldest daughter that he's supposed to give away in marriage first. That's how it works in the ancient culture. But she's not good looking. He knows he's going to have her for the rest of his life if he doesn't do something. So he does the old switcheroo. I mean, who hasn't done this, right? And... (laughs) I hope you haven't done this. And he, can you imagine the the horror of Jacob waking up and realizing this woman that he has labored for seven years to have, Rachel, it's Leah that's in the bed with him. Absolutely shocked, absolutely horrified. But notice what Laban does. He just slips in a minor detail. In verse 26, Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So so in some way, even Laban justifies his own actions. Like, you know how it works, right? Like, the oldest daughter has to go in marriage first, not the younger. I know Rachel's good looking, but, but here's my daughter Leah. Like, this is how it works. Just slips it in there. Again, you just see the character and the heart and the nature of Laban and Jacob and all of these people. They are broken, sinful people, and they're only thinking about themselves. But notice what Jacob does. There's no hesitation. And he says, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. So Jacob went to the Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. There's nothing in the the story that suggests he threw a fit. He is so enamored, so in love with Rachel, he doesn't even blink at the fact, okay, well, you played a fast one, Laban, good one. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. I'll work seven more years. He is 14 years into laboring, working for Laban to have Rachel. But there's no sense that he understands the bigger picture, the bigger plot that's going on, that God came to Abraham and said, through this family, the Messiah is going to come to redeem and bless and save. He's not thinking about that at all. All he's thinking about is, I must have Rachel at all costs. It even says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. She was just trash. She was just thrown to the side. She's just in the way of him getting what he really wanted. If I could just have her, if I could just be married to her, my life, my happiness, my joy will be complete. And can you imagine Leah living in this home where she's always overshadowed by Rachel, the good-looking one, right? That's one of the benefits for me being an only child. I have no siblings to compare myself to, so I was always the best-looking one. But (laughs) me, myself, and I. But you can imagine if you've lived in that situation, you can imagine how our culture does that. What is beauty, right? What is the outward expression of beauty? Well, this person's beautiful and this person isn't. I mean, we have apps that decide who's hot and who's not. You remember those? And there's new versions of that, which is very gross. It's all superficial, right? Nothing's changed under the sun, right? This, this is written thousands and thousands of years ago. Leah's tossed to the side for just the beauty of Rachel and what Jacob wants with all his heart. So as I mentioned earlier in the in the message is this is a messy book. <laughs> this is a complex book. It doesn't saw off the nice edges of, of relationships, right? These are con artists. These are people that have disordered loves. These are people that want things that are that, that, that they shouldn't want so badly, right? They These are people that are not necessarily honoring God in this moment. They're not thinking about the big picture. They're not thinking about the big narrative of what's unfolding in human history. They're only thinking about their own needs and their own wants. And they're all guilty. So, so what can we really learn from this strange story in Genesis. I think there's a few implications here. And I think one that's that's pretty clear is that we we learn about the what I would call the viral nature of sin, the viral nature of sin. See, see when sin is, is committed, it's never done in isolation. It has a viral effect. Like we think that we can, because sin in isolation, well, this is my thing, this is my problem, this is, you know, leave me alone. But we know there's always implications and there's a ripple that happens when we sin. Because it destroys relationships, it destroys yourself, it destroys the people around you, it destroys the communities you're a part of. It's like when sin gets dropped in the pond, it doesn't stay in this isolated uh, circle, It, it ripples out if you've ever dropped a stone in a pond. What we're seeing in Genesis is all the ripple effects of living east of Eden, right? Abraham is not above it. Jacob's not above it. Isaac's not above it. Leah's not above it. Rachel's not above it. When when they only are thinking about themselves and not the promises of God and not what God is up to and his mercy towards them, there's this viral thing that happens and it gets into everything and every one. We see this with Jacob. We see this with Laban. It's the culture. It's the air in which they breathe. And this... Sin, it releases a power that swirls around us and sucks us in. You reap what you sow, right? I find it interesting the way the scriptures talk about sin and idolatry in Psalm 115. I've always found this a helpful way and a good reminder, at least for me. But in Psalm 115, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Here it is. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. In other words, what David or the psalmist here is saying is these idols that they make and create, they don't deliver on their promises. They're mute. But here's what he says. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It's the viral nature of of sin is that you become what you worship. All Jacob wants more than anything in the universe is Rachel. He can't see anything else. He has blinders on, and you become what you worship, the thing that you want, that you don't see anything else. You, you become single-minded. I have to have this. I have to have whatever that thing is. I have to, to, to experience it, right? And it spreads and it controls us and it gets in our bones. It gets in our souls. It gets in our actions. It's why in Genesis uh, chapter 4, if you go, we go all the way back to the beginning, Cain and Abel story, I I love this little description of of sin too. In Genesis 4 verse um, 7, he's warning Cain and he says, don't don't let sin get a hold of you because he says um, in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, we only think of sin often as just like breaking God's commands, which is part of it, but we don't think of it as this living thing, this viral thing that has desires wrapped around it, that gets a hold of us and makes a mess of everything. And so we see the virality of sin with Laban and Jacob and Rachel and Leah in this community. They've lost the plot. All it is is about how do I make money? How do I get rid of my daughters? How do I marry them off? How do I win in this thing? Forgetting that they're part of a bigger story of promise and grace and mercy that God is painting in human history. I think we also learn, secondly, about what I'd call the subtle idols of good things. There's some good news coming, just so you know. I know this is getting real dark, and she's like, jeez, this is why I don't go to church. But um, but there's the subtle idol of good things. And what I mean by that is Jacob so badly wants to marry Rachel. There's nothing inherently evil about wanting to marry another person, right? That's not the problem here. God actually gave us a cultural mandate. It's good that you be married if you are able. That's not a bad thing. It's a God-given thing. It's a divine thing. But Jacob, you can tell it's not about that. It's not like, Lord, I've heard your promises, (laughs) Be fruitful, multiply, that's what I want to do. Like it's, it's. I love her, she's so beautiful, I can't see straight. I'll work 14 years straight, even if you have to throw Leah into the mix to have this woman, that's how badly I want her. And also, Leah's not off the hook either. Because as you read the narrative, you know notice that Leah will do anything to get noticed by Jacob. We'll get to that in a moment. Here's Jacob finally saying, I have happiness in my life. I have Rachel, the love of my life. It's the ways we take these good things in life, like marriage and parenting and jobs and money, and we make them ultimate things. We make them God things. We bow and sacrifice to them to say, if I can't have those things, if that thing doesn't respond the way I want it to respond, I can't be happy. I can't have joy. It can be good things like a ministry or a business. It could be our own health that we set it up on this pedestal, and if you take this away from me, I can never experience joy. So we take these good things and we make them into God things. And that's why we constantly have cosmic disappointment because we all live east of Eden. We keep running after these these idols, these things that are good things, and we put all of our hope in them. And... We have an election coming up, right? How often do we put politics to a place it doesn't need to be? and We bow down to it and we say, if this party gets in or this person gets in, then the world will be right. Then we can be saved. Then we can be blessed, right? We even use salvation language. You use Bible language to describe political parties. And, and this is our savior. It's like, are you kidding me? Flawed men and women, have you read the Bible? Do you know yourself, right? They're just like you and me, Right? Nobody's pure. Everyone has all kinds of selfish motives, right? So we put our hope in these things and we bow to these things and we say, this will give me identity. This will give me hope. This will give me a community that I can be part of. Politics aren't a bad thing, but when they become a God thing, it all goes off the rails. It all goes off the rails. And what happens is we go to bed with Rachel and we end up waking up with Leah just disappointed once again. And I find it almost laughable. Like, have you ever had these moments where, let's say you're, you're working a job and you have this presentation and it goes like really well and you're just feeling really good about yourself, right? Those PowerPoints were just on point, right? Just transitions, just killing it, right? Maybe you're a pastor and you preach a sermon. And you're just like, that was the best sermon that the world has ever heard. Like, I'm saying top three in the history of the world, you know, like you're feeling that good, right? And they're just praising you. I mean, this happens every week on Sunday at our church. And they're just high-fiving me and hugging me and just tears, right? And nine people came to Christ. I'm just like, yes, God, yes. And then there's that one person who goes, that presentation wasn't that good. Those PowerPoints were weak, right? That sermon, you didn't use the Hebrew word right there. What, what do we do? the only thing we can think about is not the 15 people that gave you praise and shouted your name. It's that one stinking person, isn't it? Right? It just shows you how, how much our hearts are twisted, right? We go on that, that family vacation, and it's so amazing and so great, and then we, we get home, and we have a flat tire, and we're tired, and we have to go back to work, and then we're just sad again. It's, it's amazing how all of these good things in life can wear off so fast it's this cosmic disappointment that even the best marriages the best jobs there's always the sense of incompleteness to them and i don't think we talk about this enough i think on the surface we make it sound like it's the best thing ever and you know according to my instagram it's it is the best thing ever right family's perfect snap right Everyone's happy for one second, and then two minutes later, brothers are punching each other, and there's a wrestling match going on, right? Nobody shows that side. But it's good to talk about those things, the incompleteness of those things, because we run after these things, and these good things become God things. And what can happen is you end up blaming the thing. Well, if I just had maybe a different one of those things, then it'll be better. Different job, different spouse, different phone, (laughs) different kid. Or you maybe blame yourself. Well, something's wrong with me, right? Why am I not happier? What's going on with me? Or you can blame reality. God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Something is broken in the cosmos. Or we can acknowledge the good gifts of God are good gifts that are supposed to lead us to the gift giver, to give him praise to realize even my spouse and my kids and my job and the money that I have in the bank or health or whatever it is are all gifts for me, but they're supposed to terminate and turn into praise to him and say, thank you for these gifts. I know this isn't the whole thing. This is just a hint. This is just an echo of your goodness and your mercy toward us. But that rarely happens. It ends up terminating on ourselves. And we get angry and we get mad. But it's always these good gifts are are meant to lead to the gift giver. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, in the last battle, one of the last, I think it might be the last paragraph um, of the book. He says this, And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can mostly truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What Lewis is tapping into in this children's fiction book, which is so brilliant, is he's saying, this adventure is great. This life is great. Your life is great. But it's not the end of the story. It's only the beginning. That each chapter is going to get better and better and better. Have you read novels before? Isn't it amazing how you read these books, and you're like, this is such a good book, and you just keep flipping pages, keeping, fl- and then you get to the end, and you're just like, oh, it's done. Oh, man, I, I got, I want to read that again, right? And it's just the the constantly time and time again. I know we live in a culture that a lot of people don't read, but um, let's say, you know, I'm on a YouTube video. I don't know. Um, but see, the, this, the secular age preaches the happy ending is now. You got to get it all now, get everything now. That's all that secular means. It just means now. There is no God. There is no tomorrow. There is no purpose beyond this. So get it in now. But the gospel says the story we enter in now is forever. And every chapter is going to be better than the next. I'm going to make a a statement. I don't have scripture to back it up. I I didn't know how that would go, but I don't think heaven is about arrival. I think if we understand we're dealing with God and his glory and his beauty and his power, I think for all of eternity, we'll be learning more and more and more, and it will never end because we're taking in God. It's not like, oh, oh, cool, awesome, God. Let's All right, let's move on, right? I think what we see in Scripture is there'll be things for us to do in the new heavens and the new earth. There'll be work for us to do. There'll be things to explore, things to understand. And, and understanding that we're not God is that for all of eternity, we'll be learning and growing more and becoming more made into the image of God. Forever and ever. I think the story begins now as we are invited to trust in this God the same God who made the promises to Abraham and to Jacob and to Isaac and to Leah and to Rachel. And each chapter is going to get better and better and better. And that's why idols are subtle. Because we think this is the whole thing, right? Marriage is the whole thing. Relationships are the whole thing. This job is the whole thing. Money, success, experiences, this is the whole thing. Travel is the whole thing, and so we put so much weight on it and it crushes that person or that thing. And we can't even enjoy it because we put too much weight on it. And so what happens here is that even good things like family and, and parenting and all these things it, it is, is the Bible's going to continually push us away from that. Say, don't make that your ultimate allegiance. Don't make that your ultimate good. Don't make that your ultimate happiness. That if you try to build this perfect family, you're going to crush your family. If you try to be a perfect dad or a perfect mother or a perfect wife, you're gonna crush your spouse and you're gonna be angry and get mad when you don't live up to that perfection. When you try to put all your eggs in the job basket and it keeps betraying you, you're not even gonna enjoy the work that which God has given you to do. You're gonna control it. You're gonna manipulate, you're gonna judge it. You're gonna get angry. And yet God gives us a better way. And that's what we see in the life of Jacob wanting Rachel so bad and Leah wanting to be loved so bad. They take this good thing and they make it a God thing. I told you there was good news, I promise. But here's the good news. Is that God still works through weak and sinful people. This is all he has to work with that's why I said at the beginning, the Bible's not this nice book of people that have it all together and figured it all out and they all win in the end. They don't, they get slaughtered half the time. Half the time they don't even know what they're doing and they, they resist this God of mercy and grace. I know people have a hard time with the Bible because they, they say, well, look at it. I mean, it's promoting polygamy and bigamy and, 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 and racism and all this stuff. But, but here's the thing with the scriptures that it's not condoning, it's not celebrating it all. It's letting it be what it is. These people are making these choices. God's not saying, hey, please do that. They're saying, no, I'm going to do this, <laughs> right? Laban's the one throwing in his other daughter. Like, think how wicked and abusive that is. Like, hey, why don't you take my ugly daughter too with you? I need to get her off my hands. The Bible is not going to turn from the wickedness and evil and the things that you and I do. It's not celebrating this as something good. But the good news is that God comes to us east of Eden. He comes to rescue us. He comes to save us. He comes to bless us even when we resist his grace and his love and his mercy. God still works with weak people. That's all he has to work with. And I think every religion, every philosophy has some version of a, I think a ladder, right? It's like, how do I get to nirvana? How do I get the blessing? How do I make God happy? Right? How do I knock on enough doors, say enough prayers, give enough Money, but the beautiful picture of the gospel is that Jesus is the ladder who comes down to say, you can never measure up. You can never reach nirvana. You can never do enough or be moral enough or, or keep the commands enough. I've done it for you. I gave my life for you. I became the ladder for you. I'm going to perform for you. I'm going to make sure that you get to God. And I'm going to do it through my life and my death and my resurrection. And it's very obvious that God is attracted to weak individuals because notice what it says in the last few verses of Genesis 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Think about that. He's attracted to the weak, to the to the one who's, who's ugly, to the one who, who isn't beautiful in the world's eyes and says, you know what, I'm going to give, I'm going to keep, this blessing and this promise going, not through the beautiful Rachel, but for the, through the ugly ducking Leah. And Leah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this also son. And he called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. It's so romantic. so romantic. That just sounds like an appendage. Like, finally he's going to be attached to me. Because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Notice the shift. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Leah wants nothing more than Jacob to love her. Maybe if I have one child, maybe if I have two children, maybe if I have three children. You know how many couples I've walked with in my 20 years of ministry that thought maybe having more children will be a good idea. Maybe that will save the marriage. Maybe they'll take notice of me. But something shifts in Leah. Leah. As she encounters this God, as she sees his provision, as she sees this God who comes to the weak one, to the ugly one and gives her children and, and, and causes Rachel to be barren, something shifts in that last verse. It's no longer about being seen by her husband, but now she's seen by the Lord. And what's his name? His name is Judah, which means praise. So she shifts from now, uh, maybe my, my husband will, get, will notice me. Maybe he'll love me. Maybe if I have three kids, then he'll he'll finally think I'm beautiful. But then she realizes that the only one that makes me beautiful, the only one who, who matters, the only opinion that I should matter in all the universe is God himself. And she begins to praise God him. Something shifted in Leah. And what do we know about Judah? Well, I know there's a king who's coming who's in the line of Judah. Leah will now become the carrier of the promise. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come through the line of Leah, the ugly duckling, the one who was weak, the one who wanted love so bad from a man. He says, I'm going to redeem that story. I'm going to restore that story. And that's exactly what God does. You go read the genealogies of Matthew, it's the losers of the losers. Right, It's the people that God uses to bring salvation to the world and bring hope to the world. It's not the people you think he would choose to be on his team. It's not the varsity team. It's this JV team. And if there's a C team, it's probably the C team. Right? It's not the morally superior. It's not the ones who have their acts, to acts together. Acts together, A-C-T-S, together. It's people like Leah who wanted the affection of a man so desperately she would do anything. Who realizes that the only way she's gonna get her life back is to set her affections on the one who is truly beautiful, God himself. And when the Lord saw that she wasn't loved, he loved her that, that 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 Leah saw something in God that He was worthy of praise. Not this man. He can't be the ultimate thing. He can't be my only affection. And this isn't so interesting that even Jesus is described as one who had no beauty in Isaiah, right? He comes as the ugly duckling. He comes out of the outsider, right? He comes as the holy, beautiful one who loses his beauty in his humanity and is 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 destroyed so that we could come into the family so that the other ugly ducklings like you and I could come in, the ones that are broken, the ones that are sinful, the ones that are weak, the ones that say, no, thank you, who are trying to live their lives east of Eden. He says, I'm going to redeem that and I'm going to restore that. I'm going to lose my beauty so that you can come in. So that you can be restored. And so, New City Church, as we kind of wind things up and take the Lord's Supper, I think it's a good question to ask. It's a good question I've been asking myself all week is, Is what have I attached myself to that's unha- unhealthy and perhaps idolatrous, sinful? And I imagine if we were honest this morning, I know it's church, it's a hard place to be honest, but if we were honest this morning, most of the things we attach ourselves are probably good things. Like it's probably not your heroin addiction. And if you do have that, please come talk to me. We'd love to get you help. But it's probably something like, I'm trying to be this kind of mother or father or trying to be this kind of spouse or trying to be this kind of friend or trying to find too much meaning in my job or money or success or experiences. It's probably a good thing that we put too much weight on. That's the only thing we think about. But God's inviting us to to make him our supreme good, our supreme joy, our object of worship, because guess what? We become what we worship. You want to be more generous, be more like your heavenly father who's generous in every way. You want to be more loving, get to know your heavenly father who's, who loves screw-ups and sinners like us, <laughs> right? But if we worship the wrong things, we become those things. We become stingy. We become selfish. And just like Leah, what do I need to lay down so that I can get my life back, right? That's what she got back. She got her life back. It's just such an amusing, beautiful picture of the gospel. She finally realized Jacob's not going to do it. <laughs> Having babies is not going to do it. But ultimately the praise of the one who made me and who's redeeming and giving me a promise is going to do it. I want to read the last, um, this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. We just want to encourage you, if you haven't um, grabbed one for your family or any, even uh, individuals, even adults should read this. I love the last couple of paragraphs of the Jesus Storybook Bible on this story. I'm going to read it for you, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. And you'll never guess what job God gave Leah. You see, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. One of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince. The Prince of heaven, God's son. this prince would love God's people. They wouldn't need to be beautiful. sorry, this a stupid Bible. <laughs> I just have some dust in my eye. <clears throat> they wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love him, to love them. He would love them with all of his heart, and they would be beautiful because he loved them like Leah. Every week, we get a tangible expression of what the love of God looks like in the Lord's Supper. Is that God didn't just say, I loved you. He showed us that he loved us by his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. It's the way John, First John talks about it. He demonstrated his love. He didn't just say, I love you from heaven. He came and he demonstrated, this is how much I love you. I'm willing to, to die and be separated from God so that I could bring you into the family so that I can make you beautiful again and make you alive and